Hi, and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing, on rhythm guitar and production, Mr. Nile Rogers. That's right, it's the founding member and guitarist of Chic, whose crystalline guitar chucks and slick production would come to define the sound of disco, and whose enduring work behind the console would put him in contact with almost every major pop-rocked act for the last four decades. Today we'll be learning all about his life, musical accomplishments, and the dark side of disco through his 2011 memoir, La Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. Destiny. But first, how are you doing, Molly? I'm good. What's up with you? Oh, not much. Uh, we've been delving into some pretty uh, uh, dark days of disco indeed today, ourselves reading about uh, the bad news out of Hollywood, uh, more bad men doing bad things as they are wont to do. They're so dumb. Fuck them all. That, that's all I have to say on that yeah. matter. Uh, this isn't the right podcast to get into uh, that information uh, other than to say, uh, uh, don't, don't do a harassment. Don't, don't do a harassment. Yes. And if you see someone else doing a harassment, fucking hurt them. Yeah. Uh, it might be a good time to implement New York's handy slogan, if you see something, say something. Except rather than... Uh, <laughs> rather so- than contributing to surveillance culture. Uh, yeah, you should maybe surveil those more powerful and with more authority who are maybe using it to harass those of uh, less stature than themselves. That sounds good. Yeah. So uh, uh, don't do it for those of lower stature than you, uh, but do it for people of higher status. If kick, you see something, say something. Kick your local harasser. Yes, kick right your local harasser. Teeth. Punch a Nazi, kick a harasser. Mm-hmm. Anyway, who are we talking about today, Molly? Well, we're talking about Nile Rogers. I think we're going to have a problem uh, throughout this with how much we watch and love Frazier, not calling him Niles Roger, Niles. Um, which is like a totally <laughs> different situation. Nile Rogers. Um, what what did you know about Nile Rogers prior to this very moment right now? Uh, I know Nile Rogers as a uh, preeminent disco producer, mm-hmm. um, a defining uh, soundsmith of it. I, I that's really about as much as I know. I suspect him to be a a good guitarman. Um, sure. Though I'm not really sure if he lists that as his number one skill or something that is incidental to his production chops, but I'm aware that he worked with many of the preeminent disco acts. I am aware that he is in chic of Le Freak fame Mm -hmm. uh, and that he worked throughout the next few decades, including with some major pop stars up into uh, most recently and probably most notably most recently, uh, the Daft Punk. The Daft Punks. Oh, those those Daft Punks. Those dafterly punks. Um, Yeah, and uh, I'm aware that I'm a big fan of disco music, so I think that I'm a big fan of Nile Rodgers, probably more than I even think right now. Probably, probably. I think I certainly am. I didn't know who he he in particular was. I knew who Sheik was, but then when he played the guitar looking so happy and sparkly in the Daft Punk video, I was like, oh, yes, okay. And then, you know, who hasn't heard uh, Le Freak say Sheik? What's the actual title of this song? Le Freak. Le Freak? Say Sheik. Okay. I don't know if it was called Aw Freak Out, but I guess that's just the, the chorus thereof. No, that would be like if the Hollywood Reporter was reporting on it, as they did over the weekend, uh, claiming that Jason Aldean uh, made a surprise uh, appearance on SNL to play Tom Petty's Stand My Ground. Stand My Ground. Is that Won't Back Down? Yes, you know, the classic Tom Petty hit. 
stand my ground. Tam, just Tam like potty. Yeah, just like their Nirvana classic. Here we are now. <laughs> or uh, Zepp's all-time rock uh, classic, Bustle in My Hedgegrove. I, I love that song, and I think that's what it should be called because I think that's really what it's about. Molly, are you a big fan of Guns N' Roses' classic power ballad, uh, Grass is Green? <laughs> what about that uh, that old uh, that old children's song, uh, That's What It's All About? You know, you turn yourself around. You oh, yes, exactly, pokey. exactly. That's what the song is called because that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, so no, the, I don't believe the name of the song is off freak out. Okay, good. Great. Uh, wonderful. So, I mean, we can talk about Niall. Let's talk about Niall. Oh, I do want to compliment that. I also was, uh, aware of his beautiful cascading, uh, braids that cover his, his face like a beautiful, like a beautiful curtain. Yes. To be parted. Yes. As his, uh, face peers out A wonderful out onto us. Persian lamp, fringe, <laughs> fringe Persian lamp of sorts. Uh, it is it is quite wonderful, and he's got great style, mm-hmm. um, which is hard hard one style. We'll talk about that too. Um, so let's I don't know let's get into it. Yeah, Nile Rogers, born on September nineteenth, nineteen fifty two. His mother Beverly is a black woman. His he has a stepfather Bobby who's white, which is like for the fifties even in New York pretty rare. Um, so his dad was black, but he, his like interracial parent or step parentage is like a big deal at the time. And his parents, step parents, parent figures are 1950s Greenwich Village junkie hipsters. They are full on freaking, uh, Jack Kerouac level, uh, beatniks. There are a couple of freaking beatniks. <laughs> beatniks. Um, they are hep. Hep freaking cats. They're the original hipsters. Are like, they big into those jazz cigarettes? They like the jazz cigarettes. They like the jazz syringes. They like all of it. <laughs> the, ja- the jazziest syringes. <laughs> those jazz pills and the jazz tabs a little later on. Yeah, all of it. All of it. Just like I'm drinking a uh, jazz soda right now. Mm, I love that jazz soda. Those trumpets when you when you open the, the lid just go womp 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 womp. Yeah, give me a bebop cola. Give me my Mingus Dew. <laughs> I can't, I can't the... claim, claim credit for that. That's an old C Lab twenty twenty one joke. Okay. Credit where credit is due. Um so Niall was a product of uh, his mother getting pregnant the first time she had sex at 13. So she's young as hell. And that means she's like, like a young, hot mom and like, you know, like a teen mom in New York. The original teen mom. The OG teen mom. Um, Niall says, it took me a long time to realize that the things my parents did were not exactly normal. (laughs) For instance, my friends and I got shots when we went to the doctor and we hated them, but my parents stabbed themselves with needles almost every day and seemed to enjoy it. (laughs) Weird. Um, Niall's wicked. He's really funny. uh, Maybe a interesting way to get your kids to be happy about their shots. Be like, no, mom loves it. Mom loves her shots. (laughs) See? You're lucky. You get to go get shots today. (laughs) Yum, yum, yum. Shots, shots, (laughs) shots. You like penicillin? Me too. That's what this is. One for uh, one for mom, one for Nile. Oh my god. Um <laughs> hey, doc, doc, you got a little of that uh rubella vaccine for me? Just a little just a little bit. Just, just a little taste me over. 
Uh, Niles says that uh, if I had a problem, we'd rap on it. Then they'd ask me something like, are we copacetic? If I answered, yeah, I guess so, the matter would be settled with a solid and a five slap or some other affirming gesture. <laughs> a five slap. He was born before the days and uh, before it was called the high five. Hey, you know, also, things were different then. His parents sound like they were eternally strapped backwards in a chair, <laughs> ready to uh, to level with him as a cool teacher might. You yes. know, sitting, sitting backwards in a chair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's mm-hmm. up, my fellow, my my fellow yeah. young adults? Or Except what, actually. What have you? But yeah, for for sure. But they were like, they were cool as shit. Um, Except for the heroin use. Except for the heroin use. But like he says, you know, they treated him like an adult, obviously, because he has to be an adult. Um, And they exposed him to so much culture, including like jazz music. So like he has this wide range of tastes as a young kid when perhaps other people would be stuck on. I don't know. It's so so bizarre to imagine. It's it's easy for me to imagine the Greenwich Village is a hotbed of culture uh, and and cool artistic things going on. It's impossible for me to imagine living in Greenwich Village, the hotbed of culture, cheaply. It w- it like, w- could be done. It didn't sound like they had that much money. Like it's it's more of a stretch of my imagination to picture Greenwich Village as a cheap living option, and that's why you would live there yes. than as a uh, a place of of hip underground culture and not just uh, empty stores or Ralph Lauren stores. Yeah, now it's like a you know four thousand dollar a month one bedroom type of situation. Yeah, yeah, or the um the the Scotch and Soda here? store or whatever those places are. There's like high fashion boutiques that are driving all the. Uh, stores out of business and then going out of business themselves it's like guys have been reading a lot you like scarves (laughs) we got lots you got like a four thousand dollar scarf oops nobody wants to buy these now this store is out of business (laughs) i've been reading a lot about high rent blight recently well this is this is pre-high rent blight this is when other people actually could live in manhattan without necessarily working at a hedge fund or at this point i feel like you don't you can't even work at a hedge fund you just have to have a hedge fund yes and that's the, the criteria. Oh, boy. Um, so, and you know what's also screwed up? So, meanwhile, uh, Niall's biological father, he's a musician, a percussionist um, who succumbs to alcoholism. And he, he, he basically wanders the streets of New York, like, crazed and insensible. Um, and at one point, he's like his he Niall randomly sees his father on a balcony, like, about to jump. Uh, like suicidal it sounds like he has a crazy weird relationship with his dad but he really has a relationship life. he's like familiar with who this guy is yeah and he says you know he he gave him the gift of like being empathetic and kind and also the gift of music but also was not apparent in any actual way right um and he died shortly before Natalie became a professional musician so that's unfortunate um heavy family stuff so his mom was not a junkie but she was in love with Bobby. Bobby was a junkie. She basically started like pretending to do heroin to get to like lessen how much he was doing. And then he called her on it one day and like shot her up. And then from then, like she was hooked by force. Like kind of like he kind of like, he was like, Oh, so you did you, you do this now. So let's do it right now together. Oh no. Yeah. Real bad. Awful. Real bad. Oh, fuck that guy. Yeah, I mean, Bobby's, he sounds, he's a, he's a character. Um, So Niall starts bouncing back and forth between uh, New York and LA. Um, He lives with his paternal grandmother in LA uh, while his parents get more entangled in drugs. His 
grandmother sends him to Catholic school and Niall skips school with such frequency that he set the national truancy record for the entire parochial system in the United States of America. Wow. And he's really proud of this. That's a monster stat to put on the board really early on. He just straight up stops going to school. <laughs> and you know what? I respect that. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that there are national truancy stats. And also, wouldn't that stat be stalled at all days for like many students? Just like stopped going forever. I th- yeah. I, I'm guessing the threshold is how, how much can you not go while still kind of going yeah i guess that's a that's the part of the stat that you kind of have to juke is like staying enrolled while never showing up yeah and it's you know it's catholic school so like they're they're all up they're counting your sins they're counting Mm -hmm. their beads and they're like i see you nile you haven't showed up in 80 freaking days or whatever this isn't just about your education it's about the love of jesus it's about god um i just like that nile is like what if i just didn't like what if instead of taking the bus to school i just didn't yeah. He started going to the movies instead during the day, which is very Don Draper of him. Nice. Um, so he kind of like grows up a little bit between New York and L.A. He becomes a young teen, starts sniffing glue as one does. Sure, sure, uh, sure, sure. He was out joyriding with his friend one night and they meet some freaky long hairs. Um, so this is around 1965. And they dose them. They're like, you want to come to a party? And they're like, hell yeah. And they dose them with LSD. He says they they fearlessly do every you know drug or drink every drink that they're offered at this party. Guess who's at this party? Timothy Timothy Leary. Dr. Okay, Timothy sure. Leary. Was he at every party where acid was being done in the 60s? I mean, I, guess, I think it's more like if you followed people giving you acid, you would eventually show up at Timothy Leary parties. The trail of uh, LSD of, of breadcrumbs yeah. eventually leads to Dr. Leary. Mm-hmm. So 20 years later, Niall is at the same party as Timothy Leary, and he hears... Leary describe the story of two I'm not sure like I know this is an inappropriate word so like this content warning um, racial word uh, the story of two young spade cats dressed in suits (laughs) I know I know it's 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 inappropriate but it's also so outmoded it's so outmoded and like he you know Niall says that he was the hippies called him that too at the time and like whatever Uh, two young spade cats dressed in suits who taken their first acid trip with him uh, so Niall is at this party with Timothy Lear and he's hearing back to him the story of when he first was dosed with LSD. Wow. He calls this coincidence hippie happenstance. <laughs> he says, it reminds me that I walked across the street to meet the freaks and that choice affected the seemingly random events that followed. Wow. What acid kismet. He's really tapped into the the lifeblood of the universe, <laughs> yeah. right? He's really uh, like uh, on the sidecar of youth culture right here, just riding along right next to it. I I feel like... You know, so much we hear about these people, these young musicians before they're actually themselves doing acid and like just falling into these scenes. And it seems hard for me to picture, but I I just have a feel it's it just must be smaller than it was. I imagine that, right? I would I would think it's not that there's not fewer people people in general, fewer turned on people, Uh, fewer people mm -hmm. plugged into youth scenes. Uh, fewer people wild enough to to do these. Mm-hmm. I mean, their uh, stories live on at such greater expanse, and like all the famous people that we know now from that time were all plugged into these scenes, so it probably mm-hmm. makes it feel like it's everywhere. But it's um, you know, I think a, a, a bit smaller than we might think More about of a it. Subculture, yeah. Uh, especially because when you hear like stories of of 
weirdos, like true, true weirdos like Charles Manson, who mm-hmm. is still nonetheless one degree away from the Beach Boys hanging out in the same area at the or same Ronnie time. Or Ronnie Spector. The, yeah. sa- the same hippies who turned on Niall and his friend it could be the same ones who witnessed Ronnie Spector's car crash where they're like, whoa, you have amnesia? <laughs> Far out, man. Same freaking people. I'm just going to assume that it's these two these two all-seeing hippies yeah. that we always encounter in the in LA in the 60s. I just imagine those like cartoons where like you don't see their eyes they're just like hair and like yeah, a neck exactly yeah <laughs> you're nothing but hair and a neck it sounds like a 50s dad yelling at his hippie son <laughs> get a job um so niall meanwhile he's kind of he gives like high school one last try he plays clarinet in his high school orchestra i feel like this is a lot of thing that people you know musicians have in common is like they play the dork music in their early days uh same uh same he loves James Brown, but he can rock out to J.S. Bach, too, uh, <laughs> safely in the confines uh, of the orchestra. Let's be clear. Bach has some bangers. Sure. The, those uh, straight eighth notes on that harpsichord, when he's really wailing on them? Yeah. Come Ooh. on. Yeah. My God. I saw... Wait. Did, did I, was that Bach? I went to some, like, marathon uh, piano... No. Who did the organ? Was it Bach? Bach. Yeah. I, it was and a marathon handled? Bach performance where it was like people rotated in and out of this church and played all day and i bought like an hour ticket but it was at like seven in the morning it was just one of those things where i was trying too hard to to acquire culture (laughs) yeah exactly i'm like i live here and i pay this much rent the original monsters of bach bach all day 24 (laughs) hours of bach bach out with your cock out (laughs) that's that's more or less how it was marketed um it was me and a bunch of like 63 year old people and then I went about a bagel. It was fine. Good story. Anyway, um, so while Niall's still in L.A., he works at the Van Nuys Airport doing things like, so his grandmother- The lamest of the L.A. airports. Is it? Well, that's the thing. Is it? His grandmother works there as like a custodian, basically. And so he's sort of like an assistant doing random shit. Um, so he does things like clean Frank Sinatra's plane. Uh, and his coworker, and so he sees all these show business people come in and out, and he gets tips, like money tips from them. Um, and his coworker tells him a story about how Ray Charles landed a plane <laughs> via radar when there was sudden poor visibility over the airport. Oh my god! Which I don't. I've I don't, never heard this story before. No, is that substantiated? I have not checked. Should we fact check this? Yeah, quick fact the check on the is, Ray Charles plane landing story. While, while you're fact checking it. It doesn't matter because just hearing the story, quote, flipped a switch inside Niall. He says, my work ethic permanently expanded. I committed to propelling myself to showbiz. Service and success. To me, they were one and the same. It was what the hippies and show business people had in common. Performing, helping, and sharing. I love that. Performing, helping, and sharing. He's like a little like show business communist. Yeah. A, right? col- a collectivist show business yeah. guy. Can, can you find anything on whether... This thing. I see a Dangerous Minds article called Could Ray Charles Really Land a Plane? Apparently, the answer is yes. So uh, I will take it from the headline principle that if the headline is a question, the answer is no, and this answers it in the headline. So apparently, yes means yes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take just from this headline, not reading the article, that yes, Ray Charles did land a plane, which seems incredibly unlikely, but uh, we'll follow up on this later. That's insane. I mean, it's truly insane. Let's fast forward now to the mid-70s. So Niall had some itinerant years, teen years in New York. He ended up back in New York. 
Uh, he ended up sort of like crashing at flop houses instead of having a, a home. He only went back to his mom's uh, when he had some bad acid trips. He sort of joined the Black Mom, Panthers the for a hot second. Are melting. It was it, it was more like mom, like my I have lizard skin, so like I'm a lizard, so I need to like hang out with you until I can not be a I'm lizard not anymore. I'm a lizard anymore. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the hospital when Andy Warhol came in, having been shot by um, Valerie Solanus? that scum woman. Yeah. Yes. So that that's his claim to fame. He's always in the right place <laughs> at the wrong time. Yeah, ten feet away, the fifteen minutes guy. <laughs> um, so he joins the Black Panthers for a hot second. He joins like a scam chapter of the Black Panthers. <laughs> so I don't really understand why it's it seems more like a front for just like uh you know sketchy activity um, because there's a there's a situation where it's so like how does this work I, I give you guys five dollars and then we give out a, a free breakfast every morning yeah sure, sure. free <laughs> breakfast yeah just give us the five dollars now and show up right here tomorrow morning we'll be here yeah with the breakfast um he he finds out it's a like scamming a scammy chapter when there's some event or situation where all the Black Panthers are called to be at like one place at one time. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to his like chapter leaders and says, we're, we're going, right? Like, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow morning or whatever. And they're like, no, uh, HQ told us to keep a low profile tomorrow. Like, we have specific <laughs> orders to stay underground. That's he, when they give they like take out a, a little tin can cap and give it to him and be like, you've just been promoted to secret sheriff of the Black <laughs> Panthers. Your job is to not attend any meetings. <laughs> um, so he goes anyway. And he like <laughs> he ta- he talks to whoever is in charge at this event. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, that's super sus. Like that's they're they're not good. Like why don't you join the real Black Panthers? <laughs> so he does. The the 172nd Street Black Panthers. Why there hasn't been a Black Panthers chapter on 172nd Street for 20 years. <laughs> More or less. So he does all that stuff. He teaches himself guitar. Um and I mean, I, I he teaches himself guitar. He taught himself guitar. He like took his clarinet skills and was like, if I just turn this clarinet sideways and pretend there's strings on it instead of wind holes, mm-hmm. it's basically the same thing. Just one big wind hole instead of a bunch of little ones. Yeah, and it's more of a string hole. Yeah, yeah, and that's guitar. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. I don't see any any problem with this. Yeah. Um, he says that he first he gets a guitar and he like is teaching himself all the chords and he strums them and they're coming out wrong. And he's like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? And then his friend is like, here, let me tune this guitar for you. <laughs> and he says that the feeling of actually playing the notes that he was supposed to be played. Cause he played uh Beatles day in day in the life mm-hmm. as his first song. And he's like, it was like a narcotic rush. Like actually <laughs> <laughs> playing the correct chords instead of what I assume sounded like garbage. Well, he was just removing every, he was learning to play guitar by removing every sound from the guitar that wasn't playing guitar. Yes. Well, it's like how, you know, Picasso started by painting the faces all wrong. Yeah. And then he's like, Figured what out if they went the right way? All the wrong ways to paint a face. Figure mm-hmm. out all the right, wrong ways to play guitar. Yeah. First... And then you, by logic, only r- arrive at the right way to play. Yeah, like eating a Reese's. Then, Niall... Because the way that you eat a Reese's is to eat everything that's not a Reese's cup first. Yeah. And no, then that's... once you've consumed everything that is not a Reese's cup, then you have figured out what the Reese's cup is and can yeah. consume that. I mean, the, well, the, the commercial says there's no wrong way to eat it. And that in- 
there there is a wrong way to not eat it which is to eat your chair instead yes and it also doesn't taste as good and it costs more too it's way more expensive it's <laughs> why we keep having to buy all these chairs when we're hungry for a little dessert yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway um niall starts playing in a band called new world rising which is a sort of like blues slash jazz slash generally groovy band mm-hmm. he says every gig was woodstock every girl was a model and every paycheck was a fortune <laughs> um he, how did he how did you start out on top like that i well that he's he, he said that that's what it felt like like you know you oh, get okay, paid okay, like okay. literally 15 cents for a show and be like this is i've I'm rich. Like I got paid for music. This is incredible. Um, he jams with Jimi Hendrix around this time. And he says it was like this amazing jam session where everyone was tripping on acid. And then of course no one hit record (laughs) classic. I'm sure if they had hit record and listened to it the next day, it would have just been like one note over and over and over again for seven hours. But the note. Yeah. The right note. The ohm. The all all note. The all note. The single note at the uh, center of all existence. Yeah. It's the frequency that we're all vibrating at. Yep. And they discovered it that night, but we'll never hear it. Damn it. Why? Why, Niall? Why? Uh, he finally, uh, he auditions and he gets the gig uh, as a house band guitarist for the Apollo, which is pretty freaking sweet. And that's where he learns how to like, you know, he, he says he gets it because he can sight read like a motherfucker, um, which I realize is like probably actually pretty rare. And he says it's rare that like you can't, you don't, you're not just supposed to like jam and be chill. Like you actually need to read music, which he can do. So he's like, he's self-taught, but he's like regimentally taught. Yeah. You want to know the difference between a guitarist and a guitarist who makes money? What? Sight reading. Is that, is that a a fact? I I feel like that was told with more of a joke cadence to me by one of my original guitar teachers. Like when I first heard that it was in the form of a joke, but now I only remember the actual wisdom that contained within it. Was he a guitarist who made money? Probably off of you. I mean, I was paying him to teach me. Yeah. And then I think he moved to Canada to play professionally in some In regard. Broken Social Scene? Yep. He was in Broken Social Scene. Every It's actually a law that every ba- person playing music in Canada is in Broken Social yeah, Scene? Yeah. Well, it's like an entry program. It's like how you get your visa. You have to go and get your, prof- your job training. Yeah. Uh, in Broken Social Scene, and then you're pl- eventually placed in a regional band. Listen, it's not a unified social scene. Yeah, it's a broken social There's scene. There's a lot of provinces. <laughs> the unified social scene proved just too unwieldy to, to manage, so the uh, yeah. the Canadian government had to break it up into a more uh, regionally specific social scene. They kept having to do to make doodles to uh, figure out when they could all rehearse, and they were like, ugh, can we it's, just like, make this a little smaller? Yeah. Just break it up. Uh, around this time, he also meets his longtime collaborator, the bassist Bernard Edwards, uh, who he calls Nard affectionately, <laughs> which I kind of love. So, sounds uh, mean. Probably isn't. Yeah. So Niles and Nard, uh, <laughs> Niall, not fucking. Ugh, I need to stop calling him. Niall, Niall, Niall and Nard. Rogers. Good Niall old and Niall and Nard. The, the Niall and Nard's boys. traveling funk caravan. Yeah. They end up in uh, a backing band called the Big Apple Band for a group called NYC. <laughs> um, so like NYC and the Big Apple Band. Which uh, itself was part of the Greater Municipal Music Authority. <laughs> <laughs> Under the governorship, of course. Yeah. Of our, uh, the state of New York. The, the state of New York music, uh, music department. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so as they are getting together and playing sort of like, I think he says he compares it to like earth, wind and fire and shit like that. Um, but disco starts bubbling up in popularity. Uh, Niall says dance has become primal and ubiquitous. (laughs) Like, yes, (laughs) please. Whereas before, before it was stiff, robotic and, and, uh, segregated. Yeah. I mean, actually, yes. Well, he said like disco brought together people touching while dancing. Mm-hmm. Like Would you when say people that did the twist, they weren't touching. Music makes the people come together. I would say that. Yes. But not all music because yes. some music you just have to stare across the room and sort of gently turn in a circle. Well, I think we'll get more into this later, but I, I'm guessing that he gets really into how uh, disco was this uh, culturally unifying force in a weird way that brought up all these uh, kind of underground movements and mm-hmm. uh, uh disenfranchised people who are using this uh, more aggressive personal uh, physical dancing Mm -hmm. as a form of connection and community building as they were locked out of other forms of more straight or square Mm -hmm. uh, connection and community building and then immediately became this monolithic pop thing that everybody uh, from him to like old big band artists were trying to ape and then everybody hated it and then it became villainized. Yes. But you know what? It's because dancing is fun. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah. it's, it's not that deep, but it is that deep. It There's is that layers. Deep. Yeah. There's always layers. I mean, there are a lot, there are going to be a lot of angry white kids in like three years from the era that we're talking about right now who, uh, have the extremely hot take that, you know what? Dancing isn't fun and is fact for losers. Such bullshit. You know what is fun? Spitting on each other and on the musicians. <laughs> it's funny when I was like a teen, I you know i'm sure you played the game of like what would i have done if i had lived at this time yeah i mean i do that still yeah sure yes uh my thing was like would i have been a punk kid or a disco kid at the time when i was a teen i was like i would have been a punk like like disco how corny like i must i want to mosh and now i'm like "Eh, i probably would have done both neither i think i would have been a punk who wanted to go to the discos but was too worried about how I was perceived by my other punk kids. Mm. But, or I would have been a disco kid who wanted to hang out with the punks. Yeah. I would have been one wanting to be the other. Yes. That sounds right. Um, just leaning at the, at the back of the group, like longingly looking towards the discotheque being like someday, someday instead I have to, go I don't there. think I'm actually dirty enough to be among the punk kids. Could be. That's the thing. That's a nice aspirational thing about punk. But also, you can there was, always get dirty. <laughs> that's true. I mean, there were there were some good clean boys uh, in <laughs> the punk scene, like uh, like all those those uh, good good talking heads. They were just a bunch of uh, squares who like funk Freshly music. Freshly scrubbed who art students. Up being punks. Yeah, yeah. They like to you know wear shirts that buttoned and stuff. Yeah, I think I assume buttoned all the buttons. Woo. Ha. Um. <laughs> Niall and Nard. I just can't stop <laughs> no. calling him Nard. I just really like it. Uh, they see the band Kiss play, and after they see Kiss, they have the idea to create their own band as a faceless backing band because we weren't stars, but our music was. So, like, they see Kiss and they're like, oh, these are people playing characters. Mm-hmm. Like, they're playing a role. Yes. And, like, we could also play a role, but what if the role was just backing band? Great. So their big innovation was to anonymize themselves. Exactly. Interesting. They're also inspired by Roxy music. Um, they like their their slick, suave vibes. So they're like, cool, we can be 
like background band as band and we could be slick and suave. That's fascinating to see Kiss and have the takeaway be let me push my own self and personality to the background because that Kiss is whole thing is is being larger than life characters is forefronting yourself mm-hmm. and your personality to the extent that that you're in fact turning whatever yourself is up to the maximum degree to be okay. bigger than life in whatever your own persona is. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, it is putting on a character, but but it's it's funny to see that and have almost the inverse takeaway. Yeah. Well, the freedom to, well, if this is what you can do. Because I just don't, I'm guessing not a lot of people were doing either. <laughs> right? I mean, some people were doing either. No, either. Like, oh. <laughs> I look, we're entering the Quaalude era, so I, I, I feel I'm sure, like all yeah, bets are no. off. P- Popper's, uh, Popper life was real and continues to be. But the idea of being a character instead of a person. Well, that's like kind of Bowie was playing around with that. And even I think mm-hmm. the Beatles, as they like did their album personas. As they like grew beards. Yeah. They're like, look, I didn't have a beard before. Now I do. Yeah. Look, I used to be a pretty boy, and and now I look like a big hippie scumbag. Did I say this in my in when we did um, uh, Ronnie Spector that I thought I guess we probably not. I I thought that there were two different bands. Like I thought the Beatles were two different bands. I thought the early sixties and the late sixties <laughs> were two different bands. The the pretty Beatles and the quote unquote serious Beatles. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know what what they did. You know, it was the same time that like I was reading Animorphs, so I was just like, yeah, they morphed into a different band in <laughs> yes. the same way that like a boy can turn into a lizard. <laughs> well, you turn the the hair slider all the way from zero to ten yeah. as their career goes on, and then also uh, artiness from zero to ten. If anyone's listening who has good Photoshop skills, please make a book cover of Animorphs, but with <laughs> new Beatles and old Beatles. <laughs> I would love to see that. Freaky. So, okay. Oh, and also Ringo should turn into a hawk. Why not? Like the Animorphs. Yeah, sure. Anything's possible. Um, so they, they're inspired to create this faceless backing band as band. Um, what should we name the band? Let's name it Chic. Niles, Niall. Oh, fuck me. Niall's like, that same name sounded kind of funny, but whatever. Let's just go with it. Yeah, do they have a thing about French stuff now? Yeah. It's I don't know if it that was just part of the like disco thing was sort of Europhilia. Fal- yeah. <laughs> Europhalicism? Europhalicism. Is that of having a European penis? Yes. Um, a Europenis. I I guess that like maybe the name suggested French Frenchness to it, but I was going through, you know, some of their old albums and listening to some um, tracks and they do have a fair amount of uh, French uh, linguistic pools starting Mm -hmm. from their earliest albums and then moving more into just like the album titles. But you know, like their most popular song, Le Freak has that. Um, And uh, on their first album, you're going to have to help me out, out with this Molly. Yes. What? You're going to have to show me this. Is it that that it is chic? Is that it is that this that it may be chic? And so it is such such that it is chic. And uh, also, and also unto you. Yes. Um, yeah, Jesus. I also think this was around the time when, like, maybe French fashion also started being a thing. Like, mm-hmm. 
freaking Yves Saint Laurent and all that bullshit. Yeah. Like Frenchness as a paradigm of fanciness is yeah. uh, coming into American popular culture. Yes. At this time. As opposed to like now you know, World when, War Two France. Yeah. <laughs> which now everyone just writes novels about that. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Jennifer Egan. Oof, coming at you, Jennifer Egan. Actually, I don't know if that's said in France. Well, it's funny who, that now that like apparently or in the last decade or so saying things are like Très Brooklyn Brooklyn is uh, uh, fashionable in France as a signifier of cool. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, where I work right now, it's all about how to wash your face like a French girl, how to eat like a French girl, how to put your how pants to, on like a French girl. How to fill your wicker baskets with vegetables and take them to the market like a french girl yeah very carefully <laughs> <laughs> don't drop the pomme de terre um okay so they have chic they start writing songs niall writes uh the song everybody dance well, that's one of their first songs with uh, an insanely simple hook uh while he's writing it nard asks uh my man what does do 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 mean I responded, it means the same thing as la la la, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny imagining these very glossy disco songs with that kind of attitude behind them. Like, what is doo-doo-doo-doo? Motherfucker, it's disco. It's fucking disco. Should we listen to some Everybody Dance? Everybody Dance. Here we go. I mean, this feels already very stylistically solidified as what disco is. That's the thing that they didn't invent disco. They just perfected it. No. So Chic comes out. Chic, their first album, Mm -hmm. comes out in 77, which Mm -hmm. is already basically the height of disco. Like uh, Saturday Night Fever comes out in December 1977. Mm -hmm. So if you're imagining that that's produced over the year 77, Mm -hmm. it's already riffing on things that are fairly entrenched in culture at that time. So so you have to imagine like all that dance club scene is like very much already a scene by then. Yes. Um, So all those things are already burbling up. Yeah. Um, They just had kind of a a clearer vision about these things yeah i think they just heard what was already happening and they were like what if we just made the music really really good yes well it's kind of this weird conversation that's going on with disco at this time is like people are taking old motown records or or more active dance type records Mm -hmm. and doing these dj as artistry things with them where they're you know spinning them in 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 um, long plays and, and having grooves go into one another so that mm-hmm. the dancing never stops. The kind of thing that we assume is like the nature of disco and then people start writing the songs to mm-hmm. go with those disco parties yes. in the disco tech. So it's like in conversation with like how the music is being played also reflects how the music is being written. So it's kind of this like four year or five year period where every song becomes more or all the disco music becomes more disco yes. as time goes on yes and they're like right there in the center of that being like we are making music for this thing that's already happening that demands music like the music we're being played it's yes. like this intersection between production and uh writing and playing wow that's really interesting and i think it fits right in with them being the faceless band mm-hmm. is that they don't need to like get caught up in the idea of having cults of personality to yeah. worship you it's just literally just groups. music yeah it's the music in the absence of personality but that's not a bad thing yeah and even when you think about like early hip-hop coming from stuff like isolating grooves and beats and break beats and just like that groove is the thing that you're talking mm-hmm. about literally that that 
four second part of a song, two second part of a song is like stripping away the artistry, the personality that this is a hit made by this person who is a celebrity, who is a pop mm-hmm. star and it is inseparable from those things. It, right. It's really stripping those things away and just putting a chunk of music down into the middle of a, uh, uh, you know, whatever six hour long, eight hour long night of music, of dance music uninterrupted. It's, it's egoless, yes. which is what like Niall seems to be writing is that, you know, he there's there's ego in the sense that like he knows that they are writing bangers, mm-hmm. but not in the sense that like we are rock stars. Yeah. He's never never seems to have that, which reminds me of other people we've whose books we've read, like Duff McKagan, which mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just like the idea that you are backing, that you are not mm-hmm. the front man or front men that you just make good music and then you don't have to worry about like being a person anyway speaking of the idea of breaking things down uh niall describes his process of writing quote-unquote breakdowns into chic's music um so those are the parts where you know the flourishes get stripped away so it's just the basic elements of the groove this is revolutionary as Mm -hmm. as you said like it's the idea that you can hear the song sort of get turned inside out is like it's fun and mm-hmm. cool when you hear it on the dance floor. Yeah, like, and you just have that rhythm going over and over yeah. again, and then each part kind of takes its own its own uh, position in it. And I think that that's also the thing that you can do with like a seven minute long disco track that mm-hmm. like a two and a half minute long uh, pop or rock song can't quite do. Like every part has to be featured the entire time. Yeah, I thought you were gonna say pop or roach song. I'm like, yeah, they. Yeah, not a lot of a uh, instrument featuring in the major pop or roach hits. Yeah which is too bad for them. Um, so Everybody Dance, just it, it's released and it just destroys at the clubs. Um, there's a club in New York called The Night Owl. Niall sees uh, club goers dance enthusiastic, enthusiastically to it as it gets played for an hour straight. An <laughs> they just keep looping the song over and over the same again? Song. Mm-hmm. My God. Can you imagine watching that to happen to something that you created? That would also feel like a narcotic. Yes. Watching them just keep putting this song back on. Yes. And so one of his friends was like, Niall, you have to come down to the Night Owl right now. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, just come down here. He's like, oh, and he's like, I can't get into the Night Owl. Like, I don't dress well enough. The Night Owl is like, you have to look fly to get in. He's like, I uh, like, I don't have the duds, bro. And <laughs> he's like, doesn't matter. Just come and say that you made everybody this, dance. Yeah. And Niall goes and the guy's like, man, fuck out. Like, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, no, 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 no. I, uh, <laughs> I wrote everybody dance. And they're like, oh, why did you say so? And they bring him in. They show him that like, it's, you know, people are losing their minds to it, which I think is just hilarious. Also, anyone could have rolled up and said, I wrote everybody dance. Good strategy. Next time you're trying to get into a, a bar, just uh, uh, say whatever song they're playing that you wrote it. Yeah. Even if it's a major pop song, uh, say that you're one of the uh, dozen anonymous Swedish guys that writes all the pop, pop songs. Nobody knows what those guys look like. I am Skrillex. Yes. Prove otherwise. I'm Hans Mertensen. I wrote this Katy Perry song. Sure. The, try, try to prove me wrong. Or, you know, Taylor Swift literally making up a, a random Swedish name yeah. to, to write her Calvin Harris song. Niles Zerberg. Yeah. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, she, she kind of goes straight 
to the top in terms of people being like, wait, this music rules. Um, their rule for songs is that each one has to have deep hidden meaning <laughs> or DHM. Uh, <laughs> and, it, you know, now doesn't You'll really pass some of that DHM. truly describe what deep hidden meaning, like w- what that actually means for songs. Look, I can't describe it to you, but I know it when I hear it. You know when you hear it. He says, our DHM allowed us to be artists, knowing most would at best see us merely as technocrats. We were bards who self-imposed a deceptive masquerade architecture on our lyrics. Wow. So like they... That's some, uh, that's some really... Uh, 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 flu- fluid writing yeah it's, it's purple but i like yeah. it i mean it matches the music yes and i think you know uh, whatever it takes to have you feel like you have written something more than you know you know what the flip side of this is boom boom pow yeah is that like taboo saying we wrote a song that said boom 180 times and people liked it there's, yeah there's no deep hidden meaning in that song they did not write that song with dhm yeah and i think what niall is saying is like yeah, we had DHM all all over our shit. Well, I think that uh, he has this thing about his his uh, guitarmanship, mm-hmm. where on the surface it's very much like one or two chords the entire time, and you just hear those. Yeah. But like every time he switches a chord, he plays like forty notes in between. You hear these like crazy little yeah trills up and down the neck. Um, in every chord that put in all this great color and extra funk into the the syncopation of the rhythms he 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 seems like he's doing only one thing or on the very surface level he's only doing one thing but Mm -hmm. every one thing he's doing is like 20 things yeah it's i think deceptively yeah and it's difficult very amazing and very unique and once you start listening to these songs you can kind of immediately hear when it's a nile guitar part Mm -hmm. even when it's people trying to imitate his guitar parts Mm -hmm. like i will try to do when i'm playing funk music because i love the way that sounds Mm -hmm. Um, you're going to love this. Sheik puts together a corporation that will manage their band called Sheik Organization LTD. Great. Amazing. I know you always joke that, you know, when bands turn into corporations, that's, that's the when, end. That's but apparently end, this but is at the very beginning. It's the beginning. Maybe that you just need to manage that shit from the very beginning. And yeah. yeah. Well, that seems like they're going into it as like, this is, this is first and foremost a corporate entity. I respect Sheik for like, you know, I, I thrive creatively best with structure and limitations. And mm-hmm. I feel like they do too. And they're, they're like, this is who we are. Mm-hmm. This is, this is our, uh, LTD corporation. And like, this is what we're going to set out to do, which is just put DHM in all of our songs. Like they have rules. They groove with rules. I My mean, that's favorite like kind a, of groove. That's a very good encapsulation of, of disco. Uh, also like just looking at their album covers, it's like, they're not, prominently featured on their album covers until mm-hmm. maybe their fourth album. Yeah. It's just like really wim- random women. Yeah. It's like random women. Yeah. I'm like, I guess these are the chic. Yeah. These, this is chic. <laughs> Number one and two. Yes. Um, Sheik's next single, Dance, 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 is an instant hit in the summer of 77. And then uh, New Year's Eve 77, they write Le Freak uh, on New Year's Eve night when they weren't let into Studio 54. And the original chorus is, aw, fuck off. <laughs> because they're mad at Studio 54. I do love a good revenge single. Yeah. Like the strings. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, I was reading that there was like a tension between, uh, or not a tension, there were two different strains of disco, and one was this like highly uh, produced orchestral 
disco, which mm-hmm. I think is more of like the Saturday Night Fever uh, type of disco, mm-hmm. which also led to people like Perry Cuomo trying to do a disco album because he's like, oh, this is just big band music with a, a stricter beat. Yeah. So they would like release that based on these orchestral callbacks. Mm-hmm. But then there was also the uh, like Morador. Um, I don't know that's how you say it. I'm saying it like uh, Lord of the Rings Mordor mm-hmm. with extra vowels in it. But Giorgio Mordor. 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 The Italian synth guru who it, would do fully electronic songs uh, like I Feel Love, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very early massive pop hit all electronic song mm-hmm. that took the same disco impulses and, and just used all electric um, synthesizer tracks. Do you have a it. preference between the I two? I mean, obviously, uh, I just want all synthesizers all the time. Yeah. It's fine if it sounds orchestral. Just make those orchestral sounds with a synthesizer. I just crave those sine waves and saw waves. Throw out all your, your uh, guitars. And Throw out all your string sections and, and buy arpeggiators. <laughs> this, to me, seems to have fallen off the wedding song pantheon, and like that's unfortunate. I yes. feel like this should be, you know, this is right in there with all of those jams. And celebrate good times. Yeah, exactly. I, I really strongly um, associate this song, and I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and I think anybody listening to this will also associate this, with those ads for CD compilations in the 90s mm-hmm. that was like monster hits of the 70s, and yeah. it would like show the cover of the CD, and then there'd be like a blue screen or yes. a blue edge screen with the titles of the songs just scrolling up, up and, and then they'd like, be like we are family archival clips and then the the song that they're playing was highlighted yes yes, yes. i associate that with this those and types of ads with this song it's get ready for pure disco the most outrageous dance collection on the planet it's the only place you can get the grease megamix and the all-new diva megamix to order Pure Disco, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown plus shipping and handling. Must be 18 or older to call. They would just go on for hours. For hours. And yet you watched them it was for like hours. The Monster Ballads was one of them. Big hits of the 70s was probably this kind of thing. So much time wasted on, um, like, what else could I have been doing? Probably learning a different language. A TV commercial for a CD compilation of songs. This is just going to be one of those things that like people eventually are going to be like, I don't, I refuse to, I don't get the question. I refuse to respond. I'm going to be telling my grandchildren about this type of commercial that I used to see. And they're going to be like, this is not interesting at all. And I'll be like, you don't even, you can't even imagine the type of medias I consume. <laughs> they're going to be like, no, Will no, you? grandpa, we're, we're going on the, the AR ride. We're going to see the fifth circle of hell. When it's going to be fucking crazy. Age, I had the lime wire. We didn't know what the MP3s were called. <laughs> Everyone had the same eight songs by one artist because that's what was on LimeWire. We would download a song and open it and it would be Yoda singing it for some reason. (laughs) You wouldn't even know. (laughs) Anyway, Sheik is killing it. Sheik's success eventually means that Niall can get into Studio 54 whenever he wants. <laughs> you would think, eventually. He, he made it. Uh, his personal domain is the women's bathroom. Oh, my God. Sometimes he just in sets like up shop in a stall uh, all night. Like, he, he's like, I treat it like my home base. Like, I would just, like, be doing coke in the stall. People would come in, visit me, like, office hours. 
Like if a girl wanted to pee, I would just like get up and like let her pee. But like he would hang out in a bathroom stall at Studio 54 all night. That's high as shit. I guess it's surprising, but not shocking. Cool. I think, uh, I guess when you, perhaps there's some sort of ennui that I'm not aware of, of like if you're making the hits that are making the people's booties go to and fro that you're just like, yeah, I think I'm just gonna hang out in the bathroom for a while i guess when it's your job you you don't really want to engage with it in your off hours mm-hmm. so if, right. if if making uh those butt blasting hits uh is what you have to do <laughs> nine to five every day when you when you want to blow off a little seam you just kind of want to sit on that porcelain throne and uh hide in the bathroom doing lines doing lines forever meeting up meeting up catching up with your old friends I but guess- also why not just go to the lounge area I guess also if DJs are spinning your track for an hour straight, it's going to get old. It's going to get old. doesn't matter what, what you do. Um, Then the, the disco sucks campaign begins, gains traction. I didn't realize this, but apparently the knack as in my Sharona was being hailed as the antidote to disco. Oh my God. It was like, look at these fine young white men making guitar music with a, with that you can bop your head to, but not dance to. I mean, I can still dance to my Sharona. Uh, Yeah. My Sharona is a a good dancer, but it's the anti-disco apparently. Here's what I think is the, uh, the central misunderstanding of disco or the misuse of disco is like all interesting artistic movements it got devoured by commercialism too fast and too hard Mm -hmm. uh it created something that was eminently enjoyable and resonated with a lot of people and at the time people found uh new and exciting in a broad populous way Mm -hmm. um and because it was so easy and so appealing it just became massively overexposed and all the things that made it fun and edgy you know the sweaty basement dance club scene Mm -hmm. of gritty manhattan in the 70s that was populated by minorities and gay people Mm -hmm. and again disenfranchised groups uh became the um i don't know midwestern white overculture right and in that way became very unexciting very fast everything gets replicated and thus watered down and like the further it spreads the lamer it gets yes i'm trying to think of the equivalent to this sort of disco proliferation and it would be like instead of lady gaga doing a a jazz standards album with Tony Bennett. It would be like Tony Bennett trying to make like an EDM yeah, single. <laughs> yes. And I don't know if he Again, has done People that. did that. Like Perry Cuomo released a disco album. That's like the thing. all these yeah. uh, uh, TV, like they would release like the I Love Lucy theme remixed as a disco mm-hmm. classic. Everybody did disco. Yeah. It became like a novelty thing that you did in the same way that EDM is, is uh, infiltrating everything. And no matter who you are, you have like an EDM track on your album. Yeah. Just I'm waiting for the Bette Midler EDM yeah, remix. Yeah. Seriously. Kiss did it at disco songs. Shit. And Kiss was part of the reason for Chic existing in yeah. the first place. My God. Uh, Niall explains, dance music was inclusive music that reached across all social, racial, and political boundaries. So he, uh, he chides record industry people for milking disco when it was up and kicking it when it was down. Yep. Basically, you know, you cashed in on it, and then once the tide started turning, you immediately pretended you had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, bad, bad. So the future of Cheek is more or less over. Like, it's the writing's kind of on the wall. Shout out to Destiny's Child. Um, <laughs> and then Diana Ross is like, hey, Niall, like, would you like to produce my my new album? 
And he's like, yes, I would like to do that. You are a queen and an icon and I love you. Obsessed with Diana. Um, they go get White Castle together. Like it gets real. So <laughs> they get White Castle together. Yeah, they like leave a function early and like. See, I would assume that both of them would get White Castle brought to them at this point. But that's pretty delightful. Niall's down. Like he's down to like you know he's not a he's not a diva. I really don't think he is because you know I keep going back to Jimmy Iovine and uh, the Defiant Ones. But like when you're a producer, you work for someone. You know what yeah. I mean? You are at their beck and call. Like you are, your job is to make them sound good. And again, it's helpful for him, I think, in grounding that from the very beginning, they chose to background themselves in their own act, even as their act got huge. Yes. It's very clever. Um, Speaking of clever things to protect themselves from downturns in uh, the industry, their attorney teaches them to protect their money uh, so that like if they become less popular, they can survive. And so the Sheik organization, LTD, was able to do licensing deals, productions, compositions to order. We even purchased rare stamps and documents. We invested in the then new GE technology called the CT scanner and started a medical business called the Sheik Mobile Diagnostic Laboratories, which sent CT scanners to hospitals that couldn't afford to have the million dollar units in-house. That's amazing. Is that not insane? The disco band Sheik was a part of an investment group that sent CAT scans to uh, underprivileged hospitals yes. for a profit. Yes. That is out of this world good. So the next time you hear LaFreak, know that. Think about, ah, CAT scans <laughs> for profit. Give us money. <laughs> but See but- your bones on screen. <laughs> it was for profit, but it was, it gave uh, places access to technology. That is wild uh I music knew business trivia. i knew you were going to love that because not only did chic were, were they fine with being a corporation but they were a corporation that did some good yeah a successful I, you know the rare stamps i don't even know what the fuck that is about <laughs> so what do you got going on oh you know i'm working on polishing up our new dance floor signals singles and then i got um a few meetings later today about uh, emergent medical technologies. And then uh, after that, I guess I'm going to hang out in the ladies room of Studio 54 for six hours. Just doing bumps. <laughs> Busy day. So, yeah, she she gets protected. And so not, Niall says he's basically like, I don't have to work again, like in my life. I'm set. She crushed it. But I that gives me the freedom to do things that I actually want to do. So he works his ass off on Diana Ross's solo album, which is called Diana, uh, which is a deeply Classy. personal project. Uh, Motown hates it. They threaten to not release it because it's like a slightly different direction. If we want to listen to a nugget from the album, may suggest I'm Coming Out, which was written as uh, a way to honor diana ross's gay fans without being like without writing a song called i love my gay fans <laughs> how great is that Subtle. i mean i guess a part of me knew that that was but i uh was not aware that that was an explicitly an exclusively gay song um yeah i didn't realize that either this would be this great was, this was a subtle shot is kind of like if you know you know mm-hmm. uh situation of of shouting at her gay fans um this will be great to play because this is also a great example of how you can immediately hear those nile guitar parts yes coming in and this is a um immediately recognizable you know rhythmic guitar uh, figure from the beginning of this song Mm -hmm. and listening to it right after those chic songs you can be like oh yes that is that is the absolutely the the same guy unmistakably uh so let's hear this for a second 
It's actually been an extremely long time since I've listened to just this song and not like a remix of it or anything. Same. I mean, also talk about Nile Rodgers' influence is that this is Mo Many Mo, Mo Problems. Yeah. Like 30 years from now. A, a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Not 30 years, 20 years. This song this, this is this great. This song, song is great. So I want, like, I mean, you can tell I've already been effusing over his guitar st- style. Yeah. Um, and this is very personal to me because I've always loved rhythm guitar and I've always loved funk guitar and syncopated rhythm, rhythmic parts mm. uh, in rock or uh, funk or R&B. Um, those chuckas, they're my favorite. And I think that he is a really interesting person who forefronts the rhythmic part of guitar in which it's like rhythm as lead guitar. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's not like a... Melody, yeah, exactly. And you're not just standing in the background going like ja 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 ja. Yeah. I mean, that's like more you know post grunge rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, he he doesn't have to play solo parts because the rhythmic guitar part is so fun and forefronted and interesting throughout, and is always doing something um, propulsive to the song mm-hmm. without uh, overpowering it. Yeah. And it sits like right, and the way he produces it, it just like sits right there in the middle of everything. It's it's just guiding everything, but also laying back. I love it. It's it's so good. Um, I guess I'm realizing that I'm a much bigger, uh, or Nile is a much more formative guitar player for me than yeah. I, I even realized. He's he's got that. It's a deep hidden meaning. Yeah. Um. So this ends up being the best selling album of Diana Ross's career. Um, and this, you know, the, the record label hating it and him and Diana pushing to release it Again, is a pattern that me, like, is repeated um, over and over and over. It's just hard for me imagining anybody listening to this song being like, nah, I don't know. There's always it's like someone wagging their finger mm-hmm. in all, in all these decisions. Like yeah. n- none of these books were written with just being like, and then I wrote blah and everyone was like, this yeah. is a great idea. Let's do it. It's like, no, it's so-and-so from Columbia is like. Don't do this. Stop. You know what we should do? The thing that we did last year. Yeah. That was good. Remember that? Yeah. I loved that. Do that again. Yeah. Like, just do it in a different key, maybe? Um. So, yeah. Diana's a hit. Uh, a couple years later, Niall meets David Bowie at a bar. Um, they get into, like, some chats about, like, music and freedom. And they decide to collaborate. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. Bowie's sober at this time, by the way. Interesting. This must have been right after his intense drug period. Yes. Yeah. He's, like, coming out of the other side of that. I feel um, like we'll never, never actually do Bowie on this podcast. But Bowie will meet almost everybody we do independently and be a fixture of each story. Yes. Bowie's so far showed up in at least he's slept he slept with Ronnie Spector um and then he's just kind of ambiently around yeah elsewhere so at this point like Niles feeling loose he wants to do experimental boundary pushing music um and then he is like okay we're gonna record let's let's do this let's let's write some songs and Bowie's like I want hits (laughs) and so Niles like I felt I feel like I was ordered back to the hit making plantation oh god because like he he's like Oh, I thought we were gonna, you know, do something weird and cool, and then do said, some like, of your Eno stuff. I want to be your next Eno. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Yeah, but so they start working on what becomes the album "Let's Dance." Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, Nile is initially cagey about saying "dance" on a record, uh-huh. given the how strong the disco sucks movement is. Yeah, but he realizes he's like. As a well-regarded white rocker, David had the freedom to use the word if he wanted. And when David said, let's dance, no one ran into the streets to set records on fire. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, again, 
not surprising mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, but that's like the unique figure that Bowie can cut is that he can kind of mi- mold, fold any movement that he wants into popular music. And yeah. it still makes sense. Again, also, this is a little later. This is like 1983, but I can still imagine. Uh, I mean, if anybody's listened to the Disco Demolition Night um, <laughs> dollop episode, which I highly recommend. That's a very good one. It's very um, good. The dollop, good po- po- uh, podcast. Uh, unpaid plug. Um you can get a sense of how drastic the backlash to disco was, where mm-hmm. there was literally enough of a movement that people would literally explode a crate of disco records on a baseball field as a popular attraction. This was a man who wrote a song called Dance, 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 and now doesn't want to write a song called Let's Dance. Yes. This is like a serious thing. Yeah. I would also argue, and I think Niall would kind of says this too, is that it's not just Bowie being able to... Uh, subvert or avoid these pitfalls of being uh, associated with a negative music trend. It's that he's a white man, period. Yes. Um, and he, he, Niall kind of bemoans the lack of, you know, black men who get to have their later career moments like mm-hmm. David Bowie and Bob Dylan and blah, 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 blah. Like there aren't really a lot of dudes who get to do that with the level of commercial success that they get. Yeah, it's that's it. basically Prince. That's interesting. And even he says like even Stevie Wonder is not on the level of like record sales that like a Bruce Springsteen is. Yeah. It's like for black musicians, you either keep it up the entire time or fade out. You, you don't can't get to reinvent kind yourself. Of fade out and then come back in. Yeah. Um, that is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and that album comes out and it's huge. And of course, Niall is disappointed because doing all this press, David Bowie does not give Niall his props. Boo. Um, Boo. Bowie seems immediately. <laughs> uh, David seems immediately like regretful that he has hits like he all he wants to do is talk about his earlier more cerebral uh obscure work the problem of hooking yourself up to a a a seasoned star like this is you never know what they're gonna feel like when they actually get to the press tour yeah what do you want to listen to off this one um i know you like uh Church on Time. Church, oh, yes. What's the, what's the David Bowie's classic song, Church on Time. God damn it. I did it. I did the thing. <laughs> I thought you were doing it intentionally. Oh, yes. no. <laughs> yeah, yes, I was. I was doing it intentionally. This is how I think of the song is Church on Time. I can't help it. This is Niles on guitar? Niall on guitar. I didn't even realize that. I love this fucking guitar part. Oh, my God. I guess Niall is one of my guys. I think he's one of your guys and you never... One of my guitar guys. Knew it. I love this song. This song is great. I was listening to this song on the subway once um, and a young man uh, came up to my shoulder and tapped me as I was listening to it in my earbuds. I was like, yo man, you listen to that song about the uh, from the movie? The Footloose movie? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no, Footloose? No, I'm listening to David Bowie's Modern Love. And he's like, ah... Footloose, that's a good movie. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then walks away. That's so, incredible. Uh, Footloose, good movie. It's a good movie. Um, two things to point out on this. One is that uh, Let's Dance is Bowie's 15th studio album, which is freaking insane. Yeah. Um, I, don't even, I don't even know if there was any uh, text to do a podcast about Bowie. I think it would have to be in like multiple parts because it's just ridiculous. Second, the other person playing guitar on this record besides Niall is Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, interesting. Legendary, gone to bluesman. bluesman. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, when he came to the recording session, 
in New York. He's like, nice to meet y'all. Um, and then he orders lunch for everyone the next day from Texas. Like a, he orders a barbecue lunch from Texas that is shipped via next day air. And everyone's like, this Stevie guy is pretty awesome. I mean, that's amazing. He was a I- then unknown uh, guitar player. Oh, he wasn't known then? No. Wow. Uh, That seems, I mean, that seems like a very nice gesture, but not an optimal way to get good barbecue food. (laughs) I think there are better, better ways to get barbecue now. Um, Maybe slightly faster ways, but yes. So what's next for Niall? Niall, you know, he's smelling the new wave future and he really leans hard into that. Um, as dance music continues to evolve, the club scenes in New York and LA, you know, they're, they're changing, they're evolving, but he's still like going out and hitting the clubs and doing it's a, a little less, uh, it's a little less studio 54, a little more dance He's a mo- he's emerged from the bathroom of studio 54 and has then retreated into the bathroom of dance <laughs> Um, so he goes to the Roxy one night and he sees, he's trying to see someone else, um, to potentially produce them. But the opening act is Madonna. Uh, and so what he sees startles him when she takes the <laughs> stage. It's a toothsome white girl stepping, AKA doing dance routines while performing. Stepping was originally the domain of black R and B groups like the Jackson five. So seeing a white girl doing intricate choreography while singing holiday was jarring. So I, I wasn't personally aware of this particular piece. I knew that Madonna was like, had quote unquote urban appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize that like watching her perform was directly reminiscent of black pop groups i mean again and we talked touch on this in our madonna episode it's crazy to know how much we take for granted that the idea of singing and dancing at the same time Mm -hmm. for a white star was like revolutionary for madonna to be doing it yes that's crazy yeah so she she's she's singing holiday and he loves it and Um, she's got good tunes she's got the good tunes so he meets her backstage afterwards and like gives her gives her props and she's like cool cool and then she needs a producer for like a virgin so she has to work on it um they kind of like they start spending all their time together they go clubbing together at danceateria which is not niall's favorite club he's like <laughs> he's like it's not that place that makes me feel like you know there's no other place in the world right now that i'd rather be um but i'll i'll, I'll deal he likes brownies he likes the like after hours okay, clubs great. um I assume because it, you can do cocaine more, more, even more out in the open. You can, because you can do cocaine before hours, during hours, and after hours. Just hours. Um, Madonna's real, real cocaine hours. Whom up? Whom up? Um, Madonna's apartment is so shittily, sparsely decorated that Nile gives her the a leather couch from his office in Connecticut. <laughs> he like ships it in, um, and he is consistently impressed as they're working together by her iron will. Um, and he says like he just knows for meeting her that there is something special about Madonna that he knows that she's going to be a star. She's not quite there yet. He meets her at this point when she's like a, a chrysalis emerging from the cocoon or what, however worms do their worm shit. Yeah. They actually have to delay like a virgin's release because her prior singles are doing so well, <laughs> which is a, as they say in Silicon Valley, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, Look, you're doing too well right now. If you could cool off a little bit so we can pair you with this other superstar, that'd be great. And it sounds like, you know, I think one of Niall's things that he said that he helped do as a producer is that, like, these songs are out of her range. Mm -hmm. Um, Madonna sounds best in, like, below soprano, like a mezzo soprano. I don't know what that means. You know, Live to Tell. (laughs) 
where she sounds the best. Okay. Like, this is... This is where she's most comfortable. But the, she wrote the songs in a super high range, and she didn't want to change them. So Niall's thing was like, okay, like, let's make, how, how do we let's make, make you work? sound good. Yeah. And he did a good job. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, it is funny how she comes down over the course of a few a- albums. I feel like her early sound is very much defined by that, um, you know, high, uh, shouty, nasally uh, version of herself. Like a version comes out, does fantastically. So then, then Niall has like a solid decade plus of just like making good songs for a bunch of people. You want to give me some greatest hits? So he works with bands like In Excess on Original Sin. He works with Duran Duran because they hear that song. And the result is one of the best-selling songs of their career, which is The Reflex. You're that fucking guitar. Yeah. Now that you know it, it's like... It's that certain, like, bounce that translated from disco to, like, 80s straight up pop, that right? hyper clear Stratocaster tone. Um, so just like other people he worked with uh, during that wild ride, as he says, uh, Steve Winwood, B-52, Sheena Easton, B-52's Cindy Lauper. B-52 makes a lot of sense. Uh, Holland Oates, Grace Jones. Sure. Uh, David Lee Roth, Depeche Mode. Paul Simon, Michael Jackson. Yep, yep. Uh, it's Peter like, Gabriel. As you're, as you're saying these, I can like, a mat, hear that guitar tone mm-hmm. in their various songs and be like, yep, that's that's him, that's him. Stray Cats. Stray Cats, sure. Mariah Carey, um, Paul Abdul, his solo albums. <laughs> 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 um, he, like, he just worked like crazy. And so in 1985, he wonders, who was I? Was I an over-the-counter counter-cultural zealot who would achieve some higher state of cool? Or was I just a humdrum alcoholic with enough money to buy tons of Coke and enough talent to still hang on to a good job? It was a tough call. Um, I would think the former. So uh, a over-the-counter counter-cultural zealot who would achieve some higher state of cool. Yes. That's him on like a good day. Yes. I mean, it sounds like all the work that he is doing is uh, at least great bordering on iconic. Yeah. Like all of these things are, all these artists, and when you imagine the artists with the sound that he brings to them is like iconic moments mm-hmm. of 80s sonic texture that every single thing he touches turns into. Like he is literally the sound of an era, and yet he's like... Ugh. But is it enough? Hey, imposter syndrome yeah, it, is it, real. It influences us all. We just had an article about it on Well and Good today. It's a it's a whole thing. He he identified himself at this time as usually a label's last resort uh, <laughs> as a producer. Uh, for the most part, I got called in from the bullpen to save a losing game. So he told himself that he liked this, like that he was okay with it. But like, I think it's a lot of factors making this a thing. I think like racism is probably pretty high up there of like, it seems like he has a consistent problem with labels not wanting things to sound black or sound like his version of what black is. I don't I, know what they what they want from him, and I don't know what he's doing wrong. Yeah, I don't think he's doing anything wrong. I think it sounds like that there's, uh, you know, labels are consistently bad at figuring, figuring out, out what, what is the right thing what is, is yes. the thing. Um, 
even if it's making tons and tons and tons of money as it seems to be. Yeah. So I just want to bring this up because we're, we're kind of coming to the end of Niall's story, mm-hmm. um, which is that like, you know, part of, part of this book is titled entitled family. Yes. And like his family, you know, it's been a long time. We've, we've left Beverly mm-hmm. and, uh, and Bobby Beverly has turned into a drug dealer uh, somewhere along the line as, as is like his entire family, like his brother, his half brother, everyone starts selling cocaine. Like his, he, Niall is his brother's biggest customer. Um, I'm just trying to pull up. That's so like his, his mom is like, she was never, she's never a street dealer. She was always like, you know, selling coke to like friends and friends of friends. And it sounds like probably Niles connections helped with that. Um, she had a, she, you know, moved Niles supporting his whole family, but at the through same time, his coke habit. no, no, no. Through, he's supporting his family through his music. He said, you know, like yeah. he's, he's doing well. He sends them money, but like they are supplementing it with their own side hustle. Sure. Selling Coke. Um, his mother starts dating a detective yeah, and he I'm never sure, wait he never had <laughs> wait. a clue he said she, she dealt right under detective's nose and he never had a clue um, yeah, uh, bad detective also bad dealer bad choices all around okay i'm just gonna read this i hope i think it'll make sense we'll we'll try we'll try to make this make sense because it's just a, it's a crazy story and i yes. think it has to be involved so um he says mom may have managed to deceive her detective boyfriend but the unsavory neighbors in her former hood were far more savvy which is how she wound up getting robbed and brutally pistol whipped so she's moved out of the the hood and into like a nice fancy uh, Mm -hmm. neighborhood one afternoon my mother made the mistake of giving a female friend from the old neighbor a nickel tour of her new diamond bar house uh diamond bars the neighborhood during the tour there was a knock on the door and before she knew it, three armed masked men had pushed the friend out of the way, stormed straight upstairs to mom's bedroom, and pinned her down in the bed. They started pistol whip or p- pistol whipping her, screaming, where's the money, bitch? My mother insisted there was no money in the house, but they kept beating her and demanding cash. Pretty soon, blood was running her- from her head like a fountain. All I kept thinking to myself, she told me later, was just don't pass out. Mom decided that she- if she stayed alert, the robbers wouldn't kill her. So she never stopped talking, which practically drove them nuts. <laughs> the more I talked, she said, the more they screamed and hit me with the butt of the gun. Then they tied me up and started to ransack the house they kept saying they'd blow my fucking brains out if i didn't tell them where the money was i stuck to my story and repeated there was no money over and over and over even under duress mom never let on that the coke money not to mention a megawatt of cash from a house she just sold (laughs) was hidden in the closet in a pair of boots after wrecking the house and coming up empty the interlopers dealt a sharp blow to her head and decided to wait for my brother bobby who they knew was on his way over um bobby has a different father than niall but bobby Big, Big Bobby. Bobby is like still his father for the year. As it turned out, they'd been casing the house and knew all about my family's comings and goings. So they hid behind mom's bedroom door and waited. When Bobby walked in, they pounced, pointed a gun to his head and threw a makeshift hood over his face. Then they took him down to the garage, locked him in the trunk of his car, a blue Mercedes to soften him up for an interrogation. Before they got to that, someone knocked on the door. It was Jerry, a sometime boyfriend of mom's who was also a successful record producer and the partner of Joe Jackson, Michael Jackson's father. Okay. Okay. Uh, When no one answered his knock on the door, he picked up the house key from under the mat and let himself in. When Jerry walked blithely into the living room, surprising the crooks, they panicked and shot him three times. He fell back outside against his Rolls Royce and collapsed to the ground. Complete pandemonium ensued. 
The robbers jumped into my brother Bobby's Mercedes and drove it right through the closed garage door, grade B action movie style, abandoning their own Cadillac in front of mom's new crib. <laughs> this was not the Mensa break and enter team. <laughs> Meanwhile, Bobby was still locked in the trunk. They drove his car to a housing complex, opened the trunk, removed his hood. One of the men pointed a gun to his head and fired. Fortunately for Bobby, the chamber was empty. The gunman tried four more times without a discharge. Undoubtedly exasperated, they untied him, put him behind the wheel of his car and told him not to not look back. <laughs> A few moments later, Bobby spotted a man walking down the sidewalk and related his ordeal to him. He asked the guy to drive him home as Bobby had no idea where he was. The man instead called the police and gave Bobby five bucks for gas. It turned out the tank was empty. Um, like, the case was never solved because of her mom, his mom's drug dealing. She never pressed charges because she didn't want them looking too far into, into her, her business. Oh, my God. Um, and... The cops just like weren't they the cops also weren't interested. They weren't trying to solve this crime. And Bobby thinks that this big Bobby, he thinks the cops were bent out of shape by the fact that all the black people involved in the story owned high end cars. A Rolls Royce, two Mercedes Benzes, <laughs> hell, even the robbers drove a Cadillac. These um, guys could drive nicer cars than us. Why would we even try to solve their case? He says most black people with very high end cars have experienced some problems with the police at some point. It's <sighs> it's one of the things that you unite us, which I'm like yeah yeah that sounds right yep. anyway uh, not surprising how crazy is that, that that's his like, stepfather almost everyone almost died that's a crazy uh breaking entering story i just that blew my mind that like meanwhile while he's having this this life recording music for people there's this like minor drug empire going on and there's his, this like scarface type stuff going on that's crazy that is like a scene from an action movie yes be, or be, a crime movie be act be yeah, great really action calls it movie. well maybe this is a good time to bring up uh, you said that this is one of the better written mm-hmm. uh memoirs that we've done it is it is definitely like it is done with like details and you know it doesn't feel like it's someone just telling you know talking to their their writer mm-hmm. uh it's really, I think, it has a well sense crafted. of a story craft mm-hmm. to it. It's Dickensian. Dickensian. I don't know if I brought this up before, like as a as an adjective in past books, but like it's it is like you know an epic tale. It, there's so much that I haven't gotten into. Like yeah. he grew up with asthma and uh, like really bad asthma and got sent to like a sanitarium <laughs> where like he and his kids <laughs> like, like a 19th century uh, romance. Dickensian. <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's so much stuff that. It hasn't even been described. I, if you know, I don't often recommend the books, but I would recommend this one. This it's one. Exci- an exciting read. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so, should we? Is there anything left in the story? There is one thing left, and that is the classic plot mm-hmm. of rock memoirs, which is uh, collapse and redemption. Of course. So Niall, you we get need, it. We need the burnout. He need, to, he, to reemerge as a phoenix. Yes, he had a glue sniffing youth. A few years of sobriety and then just gradually got more and more into uh, alcohol and cocaine. Uh, And his consumption sort of threatens to topple him for good. He uh, collapses in his apartment building uh, with his heart literally stopped after a night of debauchery. No. The only reason, and this isn't sometime in like the late 80s, the Mm -hmm. only reason he was even saved is because he accidentally hit the wrong floor and he was in the hallway of like the 14th floor instead of the 20 something floor Mm -hmm. and a janitor was there. And like if he had gone up to his floor, the janitor had already cleaned that hallway and like he would have been dead. You're, so. you're lucky I'm working down to, or up to down today. Usually I work down to up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my, my heart. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> uh, so does that stop him? Definitely not. 
1994 in Miami, he's so zooted that he sits in on a gig with the Cuban musician Neil Lara, mm-hmm. um, who he is is sort of consulting to possibly produce. And he unleashes every guitar trick I knew, um, but only to see in a videotape the next day that he actually played horrifically. Oh, God. <laughs> so I think you had said this earlier in the recording of like the idea of, you know, playing like and not realizing that you were shitty. Yeah. Yeah. Just playing the one note. Yeah. Um, yeah that that's what happened uh at madonna's 36th birthday he gets so uh fucked up that he has to be hand delivered home by a team of concerned friends um the next day he ends up in full-blown cocaine psychosis hallucinating that someone has put a contract on his life he's ends up hiding in a closet clutching a gun and a samurai sword <laughs> i mean who who hasn't who who's who, among who, us who's among us uh, if you got the samurai sword you have to use it that to might be the yourself. another another classic uh bingo card on the introducing a bingo spot on the introducing bingo card is the whomst among us moment whomst among us <laughs> has not, not ended up powered in, in a uh, in a closet holding a gun and a samurai sword unbelievable um he like he calls a, a detective friend in new york because he's at a level where he has a detective friend <laughs> and he's like this guy is trying to kill me and he tries to play in the tape and there's nothing there <laughs> which i just can't, i can't imagine how crazy that must feel yeah so after the it's after this bender that he's just like i need help and so he right. goes to rehab uh in connecticut i'm sure they have probably the same one that peter chris went to maybe we'll get to that eventually oh god great <laughs> connecticut a beautiful state to rehab in to rehab in uh, connecticut come here when you have too much money or have had too much cocaine yeah <laughs> um he says i love logic and rehab's tenets were the essence the essence of logic to me ah yes a puzzle for me to unrock the <laughs> puzzle of sobriety um he never he's never relapsed um that we know so i feel like there's two we're starting to see like there's two two cases and one is like people like duff and people like niall where it's like i'm done mm-hmm. if i have if i do things again yep I, I will probably die or I will head back down the road to death. And then there's the Ketises <laughs> just who just the like ins and outs up and down forever. It would yep. not surprise me. I mean, we talked about wanting him to write another book because yeah, I'm we pretty gotta get sure the file we would up. hear more stories. Yeah. It's tough. Addiction is freaking real. Um, so he learns how to sort of perform and produce again while sober. Um, in Japan in 1996, he's preparing to shoot a television special honoring <laughs> him, uh, you know, as one does in Japan. Right. And then Bernard uh, is there to perform with him. And like Bernard has been there in and out. Like Bernard has his own uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, so these sorts of floats in and out of uh, Niall's life. But he suddenly dies of what turns out to be pneumonia, apparently. Oh, wow. Just like dies in his hotel room the night in before. Japan. Yeah. Oh, my um, God. Which is like awful. I mean he calls him his protector and he's been that way for like years and years and years. And now he needs to kind of step up. Um, but that's super sad. He says it's the saddest day of his life. That sounds incredibly traumatic mm-hmm. to be doing this re- reunion throwback concert in mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah. And the guy, Oh my God. Cannot believe. And he was imagine. also saying that like the, you know, sudden, suddenly and unexpectedly dying in Japan is very complicated from a legal perspective. Yes. I can imagine because they, they don't, um, they don't embalm their dead. Yes. And also trying to ship someone back to the States is complicated. I can't uh, imagine a more strenuous uh, emotional activity than dealing with the death of a uh, decades long friend and collaborator and then having to deal with international corpse law on yes. top of it. Yes. Yes. 
he says that this is tricky, um, but that he stays strong in his sobriety throughout it. Um, so he stayed sober. He's worked with a bunch of more artists, uh, most not most recently, but more recently, uh, sort of catapulting him back into fame is the the Daft Punk song. I mean, in between the, then and now, we also ha- should bring up that he's really touched on. He always kept at least one foot in the door of pop music, working with yes. such uh, people as Britney Spears. Mm. Even here. You can hear that Nile Rodgers guitar in the background. Yes. And the like, little disco Yeah, strings. disco hits. His, his style and touch is unmistakable. Yes. Um, I was not... Okay, yeah. This was from her third album. Um, definitely, like, maybe her most, like, eclectic album in a way. That, like, Slave for You, I'm Not a Girl. Like, Slave for You is, like, dirty, sort of uh, Neptune's-produced, uh, grinding-on-the-dance-floor type music. I like this Slave is sort you. of, like, this kind of feels, like, cleaner and more, like, Yeah, well, this is, like, Britney. a 90s Maria... Maria. This is like a 90s Mariah Carey yes, song. But like, which I'm just thinking of because Niall produced those 90s Mariah Carey songs. There you go. There's the thread. There's also the, you know, schlocky ballad, I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. Uh, her cover of Isle of Rock and Roll, which might have ruined that song forever. Um, I, I remember liking it at the time, but woof. woof. Um, I don't I don't know if, I mean, we'll Joan Jett probably made Britney a bunch of money. Someday. So, yeah, he's Niall's been around. And winding up on a kind of, I would guess for him, surprise late career hit in the massive sig- single of uh, the uh, 2013 song Get Lucky, um, which was simply inescapable this year uh, and yeah. really is a kind of fantastic intersection of all three of these bands. Uh, Pharrell, Daft Punk, and now Rogers. Yes. Like this sounds like something that could have been off uh, Sheik's first album, right? Almost. Yeah. Note for note. Other more, than the Pharrell, you know, a little more ver- verse, chorus, verse, chorusy, yeah. as opposed to just a collection of choruses, which is Name. what those disco uh, songs seem to be. Also, this was huge for 2013, but also huge in 2013 was Blurred Lines. And I feel like these were two, you know, sort of the Gorgons, like, battling each other in yeah, a way yeah. of, like, I mean, this was retro like dance yeah. songs. But, like, this is, this had, this has the, like, disco DNA from the disco <laughs> originator as opposed to literally stealing from Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the is, for better or worse, I mean, I like Daft, Daft Punk a lot, and I like Nile Rodgers a lot, and mm. this is not my favorite Daft Punk song mm-hmm. by a mile. Sure. Um, I like their noisier, rawer songs. I like when they make the noise. I like when they do the fuzzy, the fuzzy synths. But this does, whereas Blurred Lines sounds like something that's pastiching things from the late 70s, from the mid 70s, mm-hmm. uh, and making them incontrovertibly modern in its effect, this sounds like a song that could have come out in 1981 and... I don't think anybody would have been like, oh, this sounds crazy futuristic. Yeah. This is like... This is in the pocket. uh, 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 Very thoroughly retro in like a slavish way. Slavishly enough that they actually got the guy. Yeah. They're like, why don't we just get get the the good guitarman? Yeah. 
Yeah. Smart, honestly. Smart. Um, so we're winding down to the end of the Nile Rogers story. How do you feel about Nile? I feel so great about Nile. Um, I'll, I'll close with what he kind of, he doesn't end the book exactly, but toward the end of the book, he says he's, um, he's composed a musical. He's been working, doing uh, film scores and video game scores. So he says, you may find it ironic that a guy who was once tainted with the disco sucks scarlet letter is now furthering the reach of new traditional composers in the world of theater, film and video games. But for me, it's all part of the same artistic truth. A great hook is a great hook, whether for Le Freak or Halo. Aw, that's great. A great hook is a great hook. That's amazing. And that's why I love Niall is because he does he understands the power of just dancing to mm-hmm. lose your mind, which is something that we forget about often and keep having to remind ourselves, which is why these like mini dance revivals keep happening. Yeah. Um, I think that the intersection between dance music and gaming is really interesting. <laughs> uh especially in that uh the good game a good game puts you into that like endless repetitive endorphin mm-hmm. rush of being able to do you know multiple small repetitive tasks that require like some kind of skill or physicality of mm-hmm. your, your whether it's like manipulating something or on a control physically a controller or like figuring a task out in your mind it that lends itself well to dance music mm-hmm. uh whether it's uh more modern edm or the classic lock groove of a disco track mm-hmm. it would make a lot of sense to me that they would reach out to an old disco producer to uh create new types of of repetitive focusing music and also like i love disco and dance music as focus music because yeah. it is deep repetitive with long slow changes over time mm-hmm. i think there's there is an uh, still kind of an, a deep groove cultural musical groove for for disco and disco descended music to occupy and it just shows that he's smart for t- continually taking advantage of these platforms where people are continuing to listen to music because that is also hard to do we've come a long way from the dude playing you're just flipping the vinyl over six times (laughs) at the club um although if that's still happening somewhere and they're playing lord Greenlight, sign me up i wish to go i will be taking a lift there right now um but like doing video games is cool because he's like continuing to snake his music into the snaky places yeah, and if nothing else, I think the takeaway, <laughs> the takeaway, dear listener, is that I hope over the course of this, you as well as we have really um, identified very clearly that Nile Rogers sound and realized, like, oh, I l- love it's pervasive his for and a his great sound. reason. And I don't know. I think he he just pointed out so many good things, not good things, but important things about what it's like to be a black man in the music industry and how disadvantaged he still was and is in comparison to white people who kind of automatically are granted the respect that he's had to fight for. Um, I also think that he, you know, the, his attitude toward drugs and alcohol in the book is kind of like, it's like, yes, I was drunk or high or both for lots of my career. And I don't necessarily like regret it except for the time when he was in the, the closet <laughs> with the samurai sword, but like, or, and also the, um, the near death. It's not. Yeah. I, I don't think it follows the like addiction fall redemption narrative in the sense that like he wishes he could take it back. He's just kind of right. like, this is the way things were. And it was also really fun for a lot of the time so i i think i I respect that too and that he's not you know 
just giving lip service the idea that you need to to kick your so-called demons in order to be a successful person right but when they threaten your life maybe it's a good idea too absolutely well, I think we should wrap it up because we've been going long on this one. Uh, I'd like to thank Splitsider.com for shouting us out on their This Week in Comedy podcast. Whoop, whoop, uh, whoop, whoop, whoop. Nice to have a little bit of press. Uh, if you enjoy the show. Splitsider, more like Litsider. What? He's going to, I hope wah, he wah, 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 wah. Uh, <laughs> If you enjoyed the show, uh, there are many ways in which you can get in touch with us. But mostly I'd just like you to tell a friend. Or post on your own Facebook. Like, uh, you don't necessarily have to go through our Twitter or Facebook. We don't have a Facebook yet. Uh, but Ugh. just tell somebody. Tell tell a friend. Tell your mom. Tell someone you uh, haven't tell talked your boss. to in Go years. tell your boss to listen to this show. That's not a bad idea. Uh, go to your five-year high school reunion. Go to your 10-year high school reunion and be like, you know what? I've been listening to this really interesting podcast. Go to your 12-year high school reunion. Just no one might be there, but you should go. A, call a high school reunion right now. Yeah, it doesn't have to be your high school reunion. Any high school reunion. Just go to a high school right now. Reunite it. Tell the teens. Bring them all together. Be like, hey, guys, have you heard of podcasts? Divide their problem or uh, bring them together uh, despite their problems. Yeah. It's like that movie with Keanu Reeves. The baseball uh, one? I thought yeah. you were going to go with Never Been Kissed. Oh, <laughs> no. Just, just, and it's like that Keanu Reeves movie. Which one? You it pick. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Pick They're a Keanu good. Reeves movie. Do that, but for podcasts. They're all good. For recommending this one. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at andintropod or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Our SoundCloud, as always, is at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. I'm learning. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do subscribe while you're there, you should really rate and review Mm -hmm. us. Uh, But really only positive ratings because we've only got two little ratings right now. We really need a a few more. Shout out to those two people who gave us ratings. I'm going to buy you a drink. A drink. Uh, When are we going to do Flow Rider? Flow Rida. Flow Rida. Floor Rider. Florida. Florida. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We can do whatever we want. Does he have anything interesting to say about his life? Who cares? We Doesn't can matter. do it anyway. We'll do an interview. Anyway, uh, we'll be back in two more uh, two more weeks for another musician memoir. Who knows what's coming up next? We've been threatening to do Marilyn Manson for months. Let's see if it happens. <laughs> uh, also, you know, if if we're talking about other uh, controversial figures on the Interscope label, we've got some stuff cooking up there too. Ooh, uh, interesting tea. Not the only boy getting people mad about stuff. Uh, but until then, come shout us out on Twitter. I'm at Say What Again on Twitter. I'm at Miss Molly Mary. And we'll see you in two weeks on and introducing bye